Hey, good morning. Welcome to the gathering of Church 21. My name is Dwight Bernier. I'm so excited to be with you this morning. Uh, it's been really encouraging, at least it has been for me, hearing some of the, the news of what's been going on, at least in terms of being able to meet together uh, soon in, in small groups, and that's really encouraging. And indoors and, and outdoors, I know many have already been participating in that as well, and so really excited for that for that reality of what's coming up. Uh, we can only do this online thing, it feels like, for, for so long. I, I long to be with you. I long to see you. Uh, I long to give you a namaskaram from, uh, from India. I long to do these things. I long to connect. Uh, but this is the way that we've been rolling for a little while now, and we'll continue until we have to, um, or we get to, we get to go back to certain things that we were able to do before. Uh, we're in week seven of our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. I'm so excited for the work that I'm hearing that God is doing in so many of your lives. It's extraordinary, and I'm so thankful that he is transforming us through this. So let me pray, and then we'll get to work. Lord, thank you that you are here. You're in our midst. You know what needs to change, and you want to do that change. Would you help us be open and willing to whatever it is that you want to accomplish this morning? We love you. Amen. Well, I have good news for you this morning, that you are a narcissist. Well, you were a narcissist, or maybe you're still struggling with that at some level. I think we all are, really. My undergrad degree was in social work, and I remember taking one of my psychology courses and reading about the narcissistic personality disorder. And as I'm reading, I'm like, isn't this everyone? And to some extent, that's really true, that we all struggle with this reality where we view the world through a very specific lens of me, or I, and it. I and it, I and everything else. We go through most of life, unfortunately. It seems like so much of life is a struggle to not just view people as objects, to not objectify people for what we want to get out of them. We grow up as little kids. Little kids are so cute, aren't they? But yet little kids think that the world is all about them, that the world events are all about them, that the people around them are just objects. So let me give you some examples of this. As kids are growing up, I just want to assume if you're an adult that you're still struggling with these things. No way. I'm sure you're over all these things. Maybe. But when we have parents, what do we see our parents as? Well, providers, people that give me dinner, wash my clothes. Why don't I have clean underwear? It's because you never change your underwear. Uh, why don't I have new toys? Why don't I have more TV time? Why don't we have this? Parents are seen as the giver and the provider. They, they can be seen as objects by the kids. And when the parents say, I love you, it means something different than when the kids say, I love you. Right? There's a weightiness to when the parents say that the children just can't hold on to at that moment. Growing up, we want to have kids. We want to have kids. We want to have friends. When we're kids, we want to have friends. Kids don't want to have kids. That would be weird. You have baby dolls. But we want friends. And we want friends that are going to be for us. We want friends that are going to like us, that are going to be with us no matter what. It's so easy for us when we're kids to look at our, our friends just as objects. And unfortunately, that goes on as you get older. It's so easy to look at people as objects. As people get older, and unfortunately this happens at a very young age for some, uh, you begin to see pornography. And as you're seeing pornography, you're not seeing people made in the image of God, image bearers, daughters and sons of people. 
people valuable in the sight of God. Rather, we see objects that help us to gratify certain things that we want to accomplish in that moment. I'm about to preach a message about that. I got to not preach that message right now. We can view our spouse as an object. We can even view our kids as an object that finally we made it. We made it to, to having a spouse and one and a half or two and a half kids, right? We made it. We finally got there. We have the objects that we're supposed to have in this life. Maybe you're a boss and you view your staff as objects. You view your coworkers as objects. You view the world as just objects. And so many of us view the world as, and people in the world as objects to be avoided right now because we could get sick from them. And we don't know what that's gonna do to us. And this really is at the heart of what's going on with racism. And this isn't a, a sermon on racism, but I'll touch on it throughout. That racism is that we see these people as, as an object, an it, an other, to be avoided, to be avoided, or to be looked down upon. That we struggle to, to view the world differently than this I and it lens. It's unfortunate. And yet some of us never grow up out of that. And that's Christians included. Some of you still struggle with this most of the time. That you only see people as objects. And here's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to make us mature, emotionally healthy adults. He wants to make us emotionally healthy adults. How? How does he want to do this? Well, this is what we're going to get at uh, this morning. This is our subject today. Here it is. I'll put it up on the screen for us. Growing into an emotionally healthy adult. Now in the book, I think it's it's pages 168 to to 170, the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Pete Scazzaro lists out what it means to be an emotional infant, child, adolescent, and an adult. So I'm not going to go through that this morning. I know in your city group you'll be going through that uh, this coming weak, but there are stages. And the ultimate goal is that we would end up in this emotionally healthy adult stage. But I want to say this before I say anything else, that it doesn't matter where you fit on that spectrum from emotional infant to emotional adult. It doesn't mean that the Lord loves you any less or any more. So as you're feeling conviction today, feeling that, man, my life is out of order. My life is not in sync with what the Lord actually wants for my life to be. You need to know that you are loved by God. And by making it to be an emotionally healthy adult doesn't mean, number one, that you're going to stay there. And number two, that you are impressing God because it's actually God that's helping you work toward that end. And so let's get to work. What's the defining characteristic of an emotionally healthy adult? What is that? Well, I would argue biblically that it's, it's love. It's love that this is a defining characteristic of an emotionally healthy, mature disciple of Jesus. That love is moving, but love isn't this fickle feeling that we have that I I love thee, I love you not, or he loves me or she loves me, they love me not. Not that. That it's not this feeling, but this is an action. Look at what Dostoevsky said in in the, the novel The Brothers Karamazov. He wrote, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love 
in dreams. Love in dreams is easy, isn't it? It's easy to talk about what we do if we had the opportunity, but to love in action is hard and dreadful because people aren't going to appreciate your love. People are going to take advantage of you. People are going to think badly and poorly of you when you're thinking the best about them. It's really, really hard. And so to be mature in this, to be able to walk into a world, into a room, into a family, into a church where people might not reciprocate that back to you is really, really hard. It's hard work. But this is our work. This is our work. Love. Love. You see, love is so important Love is a defining characteristic of a disciple of Jesus because love is who God is. God is love. Look at 1 John, a book in the New Testament. 1 John 4, 7 to 10. Look what John writes. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Because God is love. Now, John goes on to say in verse 9, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, made known, like took on flesh, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's a lot of stuff here, a lot of big words that we're not going to address completely. But what I want to help us see is God's love. God's love, because it's all throughout that passage. So what's interesting is when John says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God. We weren't the originators and the authors of love, but rather God is the author of love. But God, but that he loved us. And how did he love us? Because he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what this word propitiation really means, I wasn't planning on getting into it, but let's get into it. It, it, it brings this, this, this double idea to it. It's that something is being paid for and something is being expelled. So sometimes translators of the Bible would use the word expiation there, but expiation means to be, to be removed, to be expiated, right? And so what, what we have going on inside of this word is that, that God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die, to die, to take our rebellion, our immaturity, our infancy, our sin onto himself. He dies and then our sin is removed from the camp, from our lives. No longer are we declared guilty but innocent when we submit to Jesus as a rescuer and as our Lord, when we see the work that he did on the cross and in rising from the dead, when we see that for us, we are beneficiaries of this propitiation that's been done for us in our place, in our stead. And so God's love is directed at us. It's like a laser beam that's being focused in on us. I even have a little laser beam here. I mean, you can't see it all that well. Look at that. They they equip me well. But it's like a laser beam that is being shot into our hearts and it's putting to death 
what our ideas of love is, which is usually self-centered and fickle and based on feelings and on getting what I want to get out of something. And rather, the love of God, this type of love that is willing to sacrifice and lay oneself down and to give and to be generous and to serve and to be there for other people, not to be there to receive from other people. And so God's love is directed at us and God's love changes us. Now, how does God's love change us? This is important before we get into what it looks like to be an emotionally healthy adult. Well, here's a few ways that God's love changes us. First, God's love changes us to actually be able to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. You weren't able to do that before. You had to taste and experience and see this propitiating love, this atoning love, this self-sacrificing love of God for you to even begin to walk this out. You had to taste and see that first. You didn't all of a sudden decide, I'm gonna start loving God today. The only way you would ever say that is because God first loved you and God is at work in you and God is allowing you to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And as we're loving God with our entire being, that means that we're not paying attention to the old gods, whether that's approval or power or comfort or control or greed or pride or sloth or whatever your God is, your kids, your spouse, whatever your God is, those gods are dying and your face is being fixed on him, on him. And you're beginning to be changed by him. And you're seeing that you can't love both as God. You can love God and love your spouse. You can love God and love your kids. You can love God and love your job. But yet God is the primary love. He's the first love that all of the loves pale in comparison to. So when God's love gets at our hearts, that's what it begins to do. I remember becoming a follower of Jesus and not being able to get enough of God, not being able to pray enough, not being able to read enough, not being able to talk about him enough, not being able to talk with him enough. Like I just wanted him. I was as much as I possibly could loving him with my entire being. And that was all because I had experienced his love. The second thing is that we're able to now love one another as God has loved us. So this means that we're able to sacrifice for other people. We're able to bear one another's burdens. We're able to forgive one another. We're able to serve one another. We're able to um, be inconvenient significantly for one another because we are, are being changed by the love of God, which is causing us to love others like God has loved us. So this means that love isn't just a word. I love you, bro. I love you. I'm crazy about you. Love is, is an action. Love is demonstrated. Don't just love in word, love in deed. John said that as well in another place. Love in deed. Love demonstrated is what love really is. Show me. Show me that you love me. Show me that you love me. Loving one another should be regular as well and loving one another should be sacrificial. Like it should, it should hurt. Yeah, it should make you feel good, but it should hurt. There should be things that you don't get to experience and benefit from because you're giving that away in loving others. Also, we get to love one another in front of those who don't yet follow Jesus. So we love God with all our being. We love one another as God has loved us. And then we love one another in front of those who don't follow Jesus. Look at what John writes in John uh, 
13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says it's gonna be your love for one another as the church, as the people of God. That's going to demonstrate and show what my love is is like it's like art exhibits of god everywhere the church is like a big exhibit of god's works on display so that the world people who don't yet know who god really is not know about him but know him that they would know what he is like that he is a loving god because they're seeing a otherworldly an alien type of love that is being demonstrated in front of them like they've never seen that before And Jesus is saying, you get to be signposts. You get to be pointers. You get to be showing people what I'm like by the way that you love one another. You're experiencing my love and it's oozing into the pores or it's oozing into you and oozing out of the pores of who you are. And lastly, I'm sure not lastly, but lastly for this list, that we get to love our neighbor as ourselves. We get to love our neighbor as ourselves. And you might be thinking, great, I love my neighbor. They're so cool. They're they're amazing. They're so fun to hang out with. They're in my hood. I I love them. Well, this is probably not the person that that Jesus is calling you to love. Surely, you are supposed to love them. But that's kind of easy. If you get along really well and you have the same interests and you're 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 doing the same hobbies, you speak the same language, um, you enjoy the company of one another, that's that's easy. You see, this is a question in Jesus' day. Who is my neighbor? Who am I really supposed to love? Because the the commands of God could be boiled down to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So who is my neighbor? And Jesus actually brought this up one day in a parable. Listen to Luke 10. I know this was read earlier for us, but listen to this again. Luke 10, 25 to 37. Behold the lawyer. This would have been a teacher of the day. Someone that understood the, the Bible, the Hebrew scriptures anyway, very well. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? Of course you know what's written in the law. You teach it. How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, this, this parable was offensive to its hearers. Samaritans were, were disgusting. They were half-breeds to, to the Jewish listener, right? They, they didn't count. 
So when, when the priest and the Levite, good religious teachers that they would have respected, when they passed by on the other side, you know, it, it left a tension in the story. And then when the Samaritan is the one who comes by, they expect the Samaritan to like beat him down even more. But instead, the Samaritan puts him up on his own animal, brings him to an inn, pays for him and says, hey, I, I'll take care of him. You know, whatever, whatever more is owed, I, I'll take care of this. So this would have been a, a very hard parable for, for the lawyer, for this teacher to, to hear. So here are a few questions. Why did the leaders pass by? Why did the leaders go around this guy who had been beaten and left for dead? I mean, it could have been that they had stuff to do in the name of God. As a pastor, that's a temptation for me, that there's someone hurting and struggling. And it's like, yeah, but I have a schedule to keep. Yeah, but I have a Google calendar that's kind of pinging at me what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I don't know that I can stop and deal with this right now because I have to get to this next appointment. And sometimes it's true, I do need to get to that next thing, but other times I can stop and I can deal with what's going on right in front of me because the Lord had laid this guy out for this priest and Levite to take care of. Maybe they would have been unclean and they would have been quarantined they wouldn't have been able to perform their, their tasks. And that's a real concern. I mean, I, I'm, I've done several quarantines during this, this little time, and it's not very fun not being able to perform certain, certain duties or go and, and do things that you enjoy doing. So by, by helping this guy, maybe they thought that they would have been unclean. If he would have been dead, they definitely would have been seen as unclean, and they would have had to forfeit certain responsibilities for a time. But I think it's more this. In that moment, at least, I don't know who this priest or Levite were in, in the, the parable. But I think when they looked at that man lying there, they, they just saw an it. They saw a thing. They saw an object lying there. Most likely, they'd seen lots of objects lying there before they easily just walked around. So my question goes deeper than, than this first question. The, the second question is this. Why would you pass by this person? If you were walking down St. Catherine Street, when we can do that again, uh, we, if you were walking and, and you saw someone beat down, no, knowing that they were, they were alive, why would you pass by that person? What person would you stop for and what person wouldn't you stop for? Who is it that you see in this life as an it? And I'm not talking the Stephen King character. Who is it that you see in this life as an it, as an object, that you would gladly walk backwards, cross over the street, and go by in a whole different way? Who is it that you still see as an it? You know, an, an easy way to tell who we see as, as objects are people that we have a hard time making eye contact with. Maybe you've been in your car before and someone comes to maybe wash your, your window or they're coming by to ask for money and you just say to yourself, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact because it's okay if you don't make eye contact, you don't have to engage with them as a real person. But the moment that you see into their situation, it's like something changes. And I'm not saying that you have to give people money that squeegee your, your windshield. But you begin to see them more as just an annoyance to get around. You see them as a real a real person, a real, a real being. It's so hard to get by that seeing people as just it's. Another question. 
What was different about the Samaritan in this parable? What was different about the Samaritan? Well, it says that the Samaritan had compassion. Had compassion. He saw that this person was, was in a plight and it compelled the Samaritan to enter in and care. That we enter into the situation of someone else with love. With this deep love that moves in our inner being. That, that is hard to describe what it's really going on. But we feel a deep pull inside of us toward this person and toward the situation. This is compassion. This is a word that was used of Jesus. That when Jesus would look at people, he would be filled with compassion. He would have compassion on the crowd. He would have compassion on the people who would come to him that were sick. He was full of compassion. But what's interesting is that Jesus was always compassionate for the other. There was no one like Jesus. Jesus was the only perfect human to exist. So there was no one like him. And yet Jesus had compassion on all that was, were ready to receive it. All that would come to him. He was ready to lavish them with compassion. It was always the other. It was always the enemy. It was always the person you didn't want to make eye contact with. That Jesus would lock eyes on. And say, look at me. Look at me. Not to rebuke them, but to welcome them in. Have you ever made eye contact with someone and you can tell by their eyes that they're welcoming you in to their life? This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And this parable is telling us that the love that God wants to work into us, Pete Scazzaro calls it emotionally healthy adults. I think Jesus would just say it's it's real compassion that's moving in us often. Jesus helps us see that our neighbor is the person that we wish it wasn't. The, ma- the, the neighbor is the person that, that we wish this person wasn't, wasn't our neighbor, that we didn't have to love them in this way. But it's these very people that are unlike us, that are the other, that are the enemy, that we don't want to spend time with, that we don't want to make eye contact. They're, they're the Samaritans. They're the French, they're the English, they're the black or they're the white or they're whomever. And we don't want to make eye contact with them because we know in that moment that we're going to have to be overwhelmed with a choice. Do we allow for the compassion of God to overwhelm us for them or do we just shrink back into our little vacuum and move on to the next to-do list item? It's God's love that's overwhelming us that causes us to look at our neighbor and the plight that they're in, whether physically, spiritually, emotionally, and causes us to enter into that and say, I know someone who can change this. I know someone who can change this. You might be thinking, okay, okay, enough, Dwight. I'm I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to do this. But here's the thing. Jesus sets the bar of loving our neighbor, impossibly high. It's not like a Wednesday night barbecue once a month. It's not like a potluck in the park. It's not like, a, okay, we'll have a movie night. Okay, we'll, we'll do this thing once in a while to, to kind of do the check, check mark. No. It's this ridiculously overwhelming, our schedules kind of compassion and love that we need to be perfect in. Hear me, we need to be perfect in how we love our neighbor. Jesus said it. Jesus said it. Matthew five forty eight. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. 
So Jesus is saying that you're going to need to love the person that you don't even want to like, like God loves them. With that self-sacrificing, laying down your life, compassion, oozing type of love. Now, why does Jesus do this? Why does he say these things? It's annoying, isn't it? It's frustrating. Because it's like, I can't do it. I was fine. I was tracking in the sermon up to this point. Now I see I just can't do it. Why don't I just give up? But I think here's why Jesus does it. Because when, we're, when we have these type of commands set onto us, it's like a big boulder that's been put on top of us that we can't move off of us. It's a car that's been dropped upon us that there's no way that we, no matter how much adrenaline is moving in us, can lift off of our chest. The reason why Jesus allows for these cars to drop on our chest in this way is so that we would say, okay, I need your help to do this because I can't do it. Oh, do you know what brings so much passion to the heart of the Lord? When we say, I can't do this, I need you to help me do it, or I need you to do this for me and through me. And he is thrilled. He is ready to rush upon us and help us accomplish these things. He wants to distribute his love all over our city, all over our province, all over our nation, all over this world. He wants to distribute his love through us to people that would be seen as our enemies, his enemies, the other. He wants for people to know how good he really is. I mean, Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And we, we kind of joke around about that. Oh yeah, Jesus was a friend of, of sinners. Jesus was a friend of sinners, but we don't really understand what that means. That these are the people that you would not want to hang out with. You would not want to, to be around. You would not want to be in, categorized in the same category with these people because people would start to talk about you. You might not get a job. You might, uh, you might be put in this social category because these are the bad people of society. And yet Jesus loved these people. Jesus was welcomed by these people. He wasn't the odd duck at the party. He was welcomed into these parties. Jesus hung out with people who did horrific things. And you know what? Jesus never became like them, but instead they became came like him. He didn't walk around throwing out Hebrew scriptures at people. He walked around throwing compassion all over people. As people are throwing up at parties, I'm assuming Jesus is one holding their hair back, giving them compassion, not condoning the things that they're doing, but, but compassioning the things that they're doing, compassioning their hearts, knowing that when, when Jesus was on, on the cross, the people that crucified him spit at him mocked him. He said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's compassion at the fullest extent. Jesus was a friend of sinners and he calls his, his church, his people, his body to be a friend of sinners. Not people that walk around the city eyeing up and down people for their righteousness. Are they righteous enough to hang out with me? I could never be caught dead with those type of people. If you think that, there's a good chance that, that those are the people you should be caught with. Now, what I'm not condoning here is allowing yourself to go into areas of temptation, right? Going, going into to places that you just should never be. But how do you get to be with those people? How do you love those people? See, Jesus did two key things in his life to love his neighbor. 
And I think these are the two key things that help us to grow into being this emotionally healthy adult. Because we're called to do the same thing. So let me quickly go through these. The first is this. Jesus saw that people were made in the Imago Dei. Jesus saw that people were made in the image of God. This is just the term for image of God. The Imago Dei. That Jesus saw people as yous. Like, Y-O-U, you. (laughs) Not an it, not an object, but someone especially made by God and for God. Someone with great value, made in the image of God, no matter what, no matter what. So it didn't matter your, your skin color. It didn't matter your nationality. It didn't matter who your parents were. It didn't matter your sexuality. It didn't matter your gender. It didn't matter. None of these things mattered. Jesus looked at people and loved them. He looked at people and loved them. He wasn't trying to fix their moral categories before he allowed them to experience his compassion. And we as a church need to get this, that we need to let people experience the compassion of God before we start dealing with morality. They have to see that God is saying, yes, sinners, rebels, murderers, I I want you. I want you to experience who I am. I want you to to taste my compassion. Jesus saw these as real people handcrafted by the Father with a history. With a history. Everyone that comes to Jesus has a history. Even the good little religious boy or girl that like knows half the Bible by heart. They have a history of rebellion. They have a history of rebellion. And God says, come to me. I know your history. And I want to rewrite your story. I want to rewrite your future. I want for you to experience the overwhelming compassion that I have for you. When Jesus looked at people and saw them in the Imago Dei, the image of God, he looked outside the evaluation of people of them. Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? Like that's a whole other sermon in and of itself. She's caught in adultery, brought before Jesus. Everyone's ready to stone her. And they're like, Jesus, you need to stone her if you're a real teacher of the law. What does Jesus do? He has compassion on her. And he says, okay, here's the deal. He who is without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And what happens? Everyone drops their rocks and leaves. And the one who was without sin is standing there. Jesus could have picked up a stone and stoned her, but why did Jesus come? He came to take the sins of people like this woman onto himself on the cross. But Jesus didn't see a slut. Jesus didn't see someone caught in adultery. Jesus saw someone made in the image of God with value. He didn't, he didn't look at the evaluation of others. He looked at the evaluation of the Father. Made in the image of God. Broken, yes. Sinful, yes. But made in the image of God, absolutely. And so there was hope for for anyone in any circumstance because Jesus came to die for people like her, for people like you, for people like me. You matter. But the second thing is that Jesus walked around and he didn't ignore conflict that was going on. In fact, he embraced conflict. 
And some of you are like, ah, I really like that Imago Dei part, but I don't love this conflict part. Here's the reality. If you read about Jesus, he's always in conflict, always in conflict. You get him inside of a a little room with his disciples, he's in conflict with them. You get him with religious teachers, he's in conflict with them. Always in conflict with people. Jesus was not just nice. Did you know that niceness is not a Christian virtue? Nowhere in the Bible does it say, just be nice. Jesus was always in conflict, but why? Why? Did he just like conflict? No. I don't think so. But he liked what conflict brought. He liked the results of conflict because conflict helps us actually move forward together. Because the issues don't just go away, do they? You ever try to just say like, oh, I'm going to ignore that. There's not a big enough rug to sweep your ignoring under. Those issues always come back up, don't they? There are some things you can ignore, but real conflicts, you can't just put those aside. At some point, those are going to manifest. Those are going to come out at the weirdest time, and you're not even going to know how they came out, but they're going to come out. And so it's crucial Jesus did this. It's crucial to identify and address areas of conflict when they arise. That Jesus' aim was to be a peacemaker. I mean, Jesus came to bring peace. How did he do it? Well, Colossians, book of the New Testament, said that he brought peace through the cross, through this propitiation that we looked at earlier, through his blood, through his death. Jesus came to bring peace. Came to bring peace. Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And and I don't think that's just a small category of followers of Jesus. I believe that all followers of Jesus are called to be peacemakers. But here's the thing. To be a peacemaker is not to be a conflict ignorer. It's to be someone who leans into, embraces, runs after conflicts. Why? Because we love. We love. We want what's best for that person and they're not currently enjoying or seeing what's best for them now or we're not currently seeing what's best for us now and our best lies out there and so conflict is going to help us actually get there. So here's the the question. How do we love as peacemakers? How do we love as peacemakers? Now, we have a comment section on church21.online.church. You can put the area that either you're really strong in and you've learned a lot about or the area that you need to grow in. Okay, and I I have four of them. All right, so the first one is this. Well, how do we love as peacemakers? Well, first we speak. We don't harbor things. We don't allow for things to grow really large inside of us. We don't resent people, but we, we speak things. And we speak them at a wise time. It's not just when we feel like it. Well, I feel offended right now, so I'm going to bring it up. It's like, no, nah, maybe this is something to bring up later. But we have to speak. You can't harbor these feelings of resentment against people because it'll grow into bitterness and you'll be the one that ends up sinning even though you were sinned against. So you have to speak. You have to be clear. It's really important. Be clear. Some of you, in your peacemaking, you're going to need to write things down first. And I would say don't resolve conflicts by letter, text message, or email. Do it face by face as much as you possibly can. Social distanced, of course, but at this moment. But face to face. Correct misunderstandings. Oh, I didn't know you meant that. 
right? But you have to speak. Secondly, is you have to listen. Some of you are horrible listeners. I struggle with listening often. Uh, as people are speaking to me sometimes, I'm formulating what I'm about to say. So if I'm really leaning in and like my eyes are, are scrunching and I'm focusing, it's because I'm really fighting the urge to, to, to formulate what I'm going to say and like I'm listening to you. I'm giving away all my, all my things right now to you. But listening is so important. Let the person who's speaking finish. Don't be waiting with your mouth open, as soon as they're done, like I'm ready to attack, I'm ready to attack, I'm ready to attack, I, I can't even hear what they're saying anymore. But listen, let them finish. Be quiet, be patient, be asking the Spirit, help me be patient, would you reveal whatever's true in this? Reflect back to them what, what you heard. Okay, I think I heard you say this. Is, this. is this what you were trying to say? And then ask clarifying questions. Okay, ask questions. Okay, so you say this made you feel that way. What about this, right? Mine around a little more. But you have to listen. So we speak as peacemakers. We listen as peacemakers. The third thing is we don't assume. We don't assume things. It's so easy to assume things about people, isn't it? We do it based on past experience with people and maybe even them. This is how they, um, how they responded last time to this very same thing. I just assume that that's what's going on inside of them now. But instead of assuming, ask carefully about assumptions. I assume that, that you don't like me right now. I, I, I feel like you're, you're really confused about this. I think that you're ready to leave, right? Clarify the assumptions, Ask carefully about the assumptions. And I even say to people, you know what? If you're going to assume anything, assume the best about them. If you have to have a period where you're assuming because you can't actually connect with them right now, assume the best. Assume that they have the best intentions in mind and, and you'll be disappointed in that moment if they didn't, but you don't have to carry that disappointment or create a false narrative about that person while you're waiting. Peacemakers assume the best. Peacemakers don't assume horrible things about people. They carefully ask about the assumptions. And then the last thing is that we clarify expectations. Oh, this is huge. This is huge. Most relational rifts happen around expectations. Most expectations we have include at least one of the following. We have unconscious expectations, which means that we expect things of a person that they aren't even aware of. You ever done that before? That's fun, isn't it? I thought this person was going to turn in this thing at this time. I thought this person was going to be on time. I thought this person, it's like, wait, we never, we never said I was going to turn this in at this time. We never agreed on a time we were going to get picked up. So we're so frustrated with them uh, because of these unconscious expectations that we had about them. So emotionally healthy adults move from unconscious expectations to conscious expectations where we're both aware of the expectations that we have. Now, you know you're supposed to be here at 10 a.m. for the beginning of our service, right? I'm here at 10 a.m. for the beginning of our service. You're here, uh, and this is not passive-aggressive stuff. It's just the first illustration that came to my mind. So if you're not here at 10 a.m., I can't see you anyway. I'm looking at a camera. Um, But we want to move from unconscious expectations to conscious expectations. We have unrealistic expectations, right? These are like delusions, like this person's going to accomplish this many things. This person's, you get married and it's like this person's going to completely satisfy you. It's like, no, they're not. 
It might take you a, a day, a week, a year to figure that out, 10 years, I don't know. But they can't be everything you want for them to be. And sometimes we put unrealistic, oftentimes we put unrealistic expectations on people. Have you ever been disappointed with someone and you don't know why? It's probably because you had unrealistic expectations for that person. And so you have to move from unrealistic expectations to realistic expectations. This person is human. This person makes mistakes. This person sleeps in. This person can only do this much. You need to move into realism, right? I struggle with that a lot. Um, the unspoken expectations, unspoken. We, we never, they've never been said, but we're angry when they're not met. Never been said, but we're angry when they're not met. It's kind of like the unconscious ones, but the unconscious ones we don't really think about. The, the, the unspoken are ones that we, we just think that they're going to, to know. And so we have to move from the unspoken expectations to like a job description, like writing things down where it's really clear. So we move from unspoken to spoken, where it's clear, direct, and we respectfully speak. We respectfully speak. And the last expectation is, is the unagreed upon one. The unagreed upon expectation. That we just thought the person should agree. Well, I thought you were going to pick up the kids at this time. I thought you were going to drop off groceries. Like, I, I thought you were just going to agree to that. Or I thought that you would do this. That happens in marriage a lot. We just assume that our, our spouse is going to be okay with, with certain things. But we have to move from the unagreed upon expectations to agreed upon expectations. I remember early on in, in our ministry, uh, I would just show up at home with people. I'd be like, oh, I brought so-and-so home for, for dinner. And my wife was so kind and be like, oh, okay, great. But then one time she just said, you can't just bring people home for dinner anymore. You have to let me know, right? This was a, a agreed upon expectation that is now being thrown down into our marriage. And it's been a beautiful thing for us. But here's the thing, as, as peacemakers, as peacemakers, we're going to need to run at conflict. Don't, don't shy away from it. Don't hope it's just going to go away on its own. It won't. We need to embrace it. And as we're embracing it, we look to the great peacemaker, Jesus, for what he purchased, that ultimately there will be peace. And even in the most like broken situation, where we're needing to love someone that really doesn't love us back at all, there's always hope because the Prince of Peace is alive. And if he's alive and active and moving through his spirit, then peace can happen at any time. So here's, here's the big idea of this morning. That God wants his people, God wants the church to be a community of emotionally healthy adults. Okay? Emotionally healthy adults who love well in the world. Who love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Who love one another as God has loved us. Who love one another in front of the world. And who love our neighbor like not the neighbor that we get along with super well, but, but the other, the enemy, that the person that's not like us at all, that one we're running at like the Samaritan took care of the one who is beaten up along the way. And here's the good news for us is that Jesus's love is enough to accomplish all of these things because we're not gonna do it perfect. Jesus calls us to perfection, but he actually fulfilled that for us in our place. And now we get to work out the works that he's actually calling us to. So we're not going to do it perfect, but we're going to be seeking him and his love. As we're seeking him and his love and we're bathing in that, we're going to begin to flush out the narcissistic and childish tendencies of our past and present so that our future is defined by love.
so that our future is defined by the love of God seeping through us. See, our only aim is to seek his kingdom and bring it to bear wherever we are. It's frustrating because you're not going to get it right. You're going to try really hard and I'm going to try really hard. We're not going to get it right. But what it's going to do is it's going to force us to either give up, say, you know what, this just isn't for me. Or it's going to force us into deeper relationship with God. Because we're going to keep saying, Lord, this is another this is another rock that's on my chest. This is another vehicle that's been lowered on me. I can't do this. I can't love this person. I need you to love them through me. I need you to change me. Lord, I see this person. I see these people as it's, as objects. If you do, own that. Own it. That's so important. Don't, don't stuff that down. Oh, it's embarrassing. Pull that out. Say, I see these people as it's. And I'm seeing them as it's and taking that out of my heart so that I can put this down and stomp on it and kill it and say, Lord, would you help me to see them as you and as made in the image of God, beautiful image bearers worthy of all the value that you have placed upon them. You see, the Lord is sending us out as peacemakers to love in very hostile and uncomfortable places. But we're sent out full of the Spirit ready to love, ready to love with the love of God in places where the love of God is not yet known. So we're going to respond now. We're going to respond. First, if, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know Jesus, you can know him. You can meet him today. He can become your Prince of Peace. He died on the cross for you and he rose from the dead for you and he's with you right now and he wants to rush in you through his spirit and change you to be like him. So you can say, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. I need you to be my leader. I need you to be my captain. I need you to be my Lord. I give all my life to you and you will be rescued. For some of us, uh, we, we do, and it's time to grow up. And the Spirit is saying, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to move in some of these areas that you've been resisting me in. It's time for you to speak. It's time for you to listen. It's time for you to clarify. It's time for you not to assume anymore. It's time for you to love that neighbor as yourself. You need to go and make things right with that neighbor or go invite that person. How do you need to respond this morning? Well, we're going to respond a few different ways. One, uh, we're going to give. So we have a give button. You can click on that. You can give. This is for people who are part of Church 21. Um, We're going to be giving a a more full update in a few weeks about what's been going on, uh, but nothing has diminished in terms of budget, and we want to keep moving towards people as a church. And and as we begin to gather again, expenses will go back to normal. And so... uh, if, if you're part of the people of God, then part of our joy and our privilege is to give the resources that the Father has given to you. Um, we're going we're gonna to hear uh, from, from Jordan. Jordan is doing an interview um, with someone, and you'll hear that later on in, in, this, in the second part of the service. We're going to sing, and I know that for some of you, singing at home is, is so strange, um, but you think about it, watching YouTube, singing along, like this is what we're doing, except this is our church gathering, like our church scattered in different places, gathering together virtually, singing out and declaring and demonstrating the good news of who Jesus is 
And so we'd invite you to sing. And if you can't sing, to just sit and allow for these words to be bathed over you. And if you need prayer, you can hit that request prayer button on our Church 21 platform and someone will pray for you. So let me pray now. Lord, would you fill us with expectation? Would you change us? Would you help us uh, to be peacemakers who love uh, the unlovable because we were the unlovable and you came after us and you rescued us and you're making us like you. So Jesus, we love you and we need you for everything. Amen.